Hi friends, welcome to Rainbow Parenting, a queer and gender affirming podcast for anyone with littles in their lives. I'm your host, Linz Amer. Before I get into my interview with drag queen supreme Little Miss Hot Mess, we've got a little bit of business to take care of. First of all, please, please, please pre-order the Rainbow Parenting book. You can pre-order it anywhere you get your books on Amazon, which, you know, obviously isn't our favorite, but bookshop.org, which I absolutely love. Uh, Lots of other places where you can get books. Barnes & Noble is borders still a thing? Unsure. But there are lots of places that sell books, and that means that you can pre-order Rainbow Parenting. I promise you, if you like this podcast, you're going to like the book. This podcast is really just an expansion of what I talk about in the book, uh, especially if like you haven't quite been understanding everything that we've been talking about in the podcast, because this is some high-level stuff, right? So the book really breaks things down, takes time, paces it out, and really goes through how you can talk to kids and the kids around you in your life, and even the grown-ups around you, right, about queer and gender affirming topics. So we'll go through infancy and pre-K and kindergarten and elementary school, and we'll kind of scaffold how you can talk about these topics throughout a child's life, circling back to ideas that you've made a foundation with and continuing to deepen their learning and understanding about topics like gender and sexuality and even LGBTQ plus history. And we also get into our internalized biases and how we can start to break those down and kind of get to a place where we really get I mean, this podcast gets pretty deep into all of that. If you've been looking for something a little bit more on like the 101 broken down, you can take it at your own pace. The book is going to be really, really great for you. And I also highly recommend it as like a baby shower book or any expecting parents, any educators in your life, any caregivers who are in your lives. Um, So yeah, please pre-order the Rainbow Parenting book. Pre-orders are super, super important for authors because it tells our publishers and our bookstores that people want to read our books. And I'm a debut author. This is my first book. And uh, it's really important to have those pre-sale numbers. So again, anywhere books are sold, go pre-order Rainbow Parenting. And we'll probably do a giveaway at some point in the future. So keep an eye on the podcast feed for that. One more quick thing is that this might be live when you're listening to it, or it might be about to go live. I'm unsure, but we're about to launch a t-shirt campaign. We've got this cute little end of year kind of holiday time shirt called A Friend of Teddy's, which is a callback if you've ever heard the phrase before, A Friend of Dorothy's was a code word used throughout history around the Wizard of Oz. That was an indicator you know, when people couldn't be out as queer and trans in like the 40s and the 50s, they would use this phrase, are you a friend of Dorothy's to indicate that they were queer or trans or however they might have identified. So we decided to do our own little take of that and say, are you a friend of Teddy's? And there's just a cute little graphic that's very Wizard of Oz inspired. I think it's pretty cute. So go check that out. It's our campaign on Bonfire. It's just going to be going from November through the end of December. So so that's the only time you can get this design. So go check that out. We'll put the link to it in the show notes. All right, that's enough business for now. This conversation I'm having with Little Miss Hot Mess is so, so important right now. Little Miss Hot Mess is a picture book author and an academic and scholar and also is one of the board members for Drag Story Hour. I had the absolute pleasure of working with Drag Queen Story Hour's New York chapter for a couple of Queer Kid Stuff videos in our Pride series, and I am still so, so happy with how those turned out, and they have just been absolutely lovely to work with and kind of grow with over the years that I've been doing all of this work. Drag Queen Story Hour and Queer Kid Stuff kind of happened in the same approximate time frame, and it's been really, really cool to kind of come up with them and see how they've expanded and see how our businesses are kind of uh, building on each other and also kind of going in different directions. So I talked to Little Miss Hot Mess about that kind of trajectory on their end, and then we also get into 
the safety issues that are happening right now with drag story hours across the country. I just did a gig in Las Vegas at a library, and it's the first time I'd ever had protesters outside of a performance that I was doing. And it really just just hit me so much that, you know, I do so much stuff that's virtual and digital, and my body isn't in that kind of vulnerable space where safety is as much of a tangible problem. But with Drag Queen Story Hour, everything they do is in person and in space with young people. And that means that they can be vulnerable. And so we talk a lot about that. And it's something that I think is just really, really important to talk about right now as things are escalating politically. And I hope you all uh, enjoy this conversation. That's enough of me talking. Let's get to it. Hello, Rainbow Parenting friends. I am here with Little Miss Hot Mess. Hello. How are you today? Hello. I'm fabulous. Thanks so much for having me. Of course, of course. Before we dive into things. We're talking Drag Queen Story Hour during this podcast. I do want to get your name and your pronouns and however you identify. Yes, my name is Little Miss Hot Mess. When I'm in drag, I use she, her pronouns, um, although they, them is also fine. Uh, And I identify as a queer, genderqueer, chronically ill, white, Jewish, person in the world drag queen amazing there <laughs> i also want to add you're a picture book author and i am i am also a children's book author yes amazing amazing okay cool uh let's dive into it because i've been aware of your work for a while and have been wanting to get you on here and i think there's a lot of very relevant stuff to be talking about just kind of regarding drag queen story hour and like the overlap of our work but i wanna let's get back to basics let's get back to the beginning first of all In your own words, how would you describe what Drag Queen Story Hour is? I think that's a good place to start. I always say that Drag Queen Story Hour is basically what it sounds like. It is drag queens, drag kings, drag performers of all kinds reading stories to kids in libraries and schools and bookstores and other sorts of community spaces. Um, So it's kind of, you know, take your typical story hour event that you would have at any kind of library or bookstore and just add a sparkly, fabulous performer. Incredible. Can you tell us a little bit about the origins of Drag Queen Story? And as we're doing that, I do want to kind of contextualize it within history, right? Because like Drag Queen Story Hour by name is a new phenomenon, but there's Mm -hmm. a long history of drag and kids and theater and storytelling. And so I want to make sure that we're also like kind of understanding that this isn't a new thing, but also like is new in this iteration. So let's talk about the the origin story of like this iteration of Drag Queen Story Hour. That's a great way of framing it because you're right. This isn't, it's not exactly new, but it's sort of new. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's complicated. But yeah. um, our organization kind of officially started in 2015 in San Francisco, uh, where it was organized by Michelle T and Julian Delgado-Lopera and Virgie mm-hmm. Tovar under the auspices of an organization called Radar Productions, which is kind of like a queer literary and arts organization. Um, and Michelle T, who some of your listeners might know, is, is a queer author, as are all of those people I just mentioned. Um, but she had recently had a kid and, you know, I think was just really looking for queer-friendly or queer events to bring her kid to and was really not finding much and, you know, mm-hmm. was going to typical story hours and, enjoying them, but feeling like that was sort of a missed opportunity to actually um, queer things up a little bit. And so, yeah, I think she had this idea that, you know, drag queens and children had so many kind of like foundational affinities in terms of using their imaginations and playing and playing dress up and, you know, being willing to ask questions in the world that Mm -hmm. um, it felt like this idea that was, you know, so out there that it just might work. And so one of my good friends, Persia, was one of the first or was the first performer um, in this iteration to read for Drag Queen Story Hour. And then it quickly took off um, around the country and around the world. Uh, And we now have, I think, over 50 chapters around the world. Um, Yeah. And, and, you know, in, in a lot of different 
places too. It sort of started by moving to like New York City and Los Angeles, but then also quickly moved to Raleigh, North Carolina and to Phoenix, Arizona and to El Paso, Texas. And now we're in Tokyo and Mexico City and Berlin and uh, Malmo, Sweden, like all these great places. So yeah, it, it's an exciting program. And, you know, I got involved personally, maybe like a year or so uh, after it officially started, I had just left San Francisco and moved to New York mm. and was watching all these friends of mine, like post all these amazing pictures of them reading to kids and smiling with kids. And I just knew that I wanted to do it. So uh, luckily I know Michelle and she kind of helped hook me up uh, in New York and it all took off from there. Oh, fantastic. And I love that you pointed out kind of like the global factor of all of this, because as someone who, I mean, I run some, uh, queer kid stuff, which is very adjacent to you all and also like kind of happened at a similar time. I started in 2016. Mm -hmm. So it was like cool to watch these like two things kind of grow and shoot out from each other. Um, Absolutely. But I love, yeah, talking about the global thing, because I work in a lot of kids media now. And there's always this like, quote unquote, concern of like, you know, this isn't like a global topic. But like, it is specifically very global because one queerness is ubiquitous and is a global identity into itself because humans are queer. It doesn't have anything to do with <laughs> any one culture, but also like literally their drag queen story hour chapters in Germany and in all these other countries. And like, I can look at my YouTube analytics for queer kid stuff and tell you that there are people who are watching it. Like those same people in Berlin are watching it. Mm-hmm, I get viewers mm-hmm. in like Pakistan. I have like, analytics that tell me people in Russia actually do watch it. I mean, it's oh, wow. very, very small. And like, I don't know what the analytics actually are in <laughs> Russia, <but laughs> yeah. what they can access. But I always think that that's so interesting to look at like, yes, these are like global initiatives that people are, are, are working on. So anyways, that was a tangent. Um, but I would love to just keep diving into this. I think it's so interesting to look at the trajectory of like each of these organizations and see kind of where things have come to, because I think that it's been a long journey, I think, for both organizations and now coming up against some of, I think, similar obstacles. Um, but before we get there, I would love to um, what I was saying before, kind of couch it in a history and talk a little bit about drag and kids. Because as I was saying before, this isn't a new phenomenon. Putting drag queens and drag royalty in front of children isn't a new thing. Do you know uh, much about that history? You know, I actually don't know a ton of that history um, in a broad sense. But Mm -hmm. I mean, there have always been things, or maybe not always, but for a long time, there's been things like, you know, drag brunches Mm -hmm. and, you know, kids at pride parades and things like that. So that's sort of what my mind immediately goes to in terms of thinking about some of the spaces where kids and drag performers might have interacted before. Mm -hmm. Um, I can share that one time... Oh, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago or so, maybe even a little bit longer. Uh, I got to participate in a wonderful program at the De Young Museum in San Francisco that my mm. friend Phonique organized, where we actually had, um, it was sort of drag queens got to be like real life models and kids mm. got to create costumes for us, which was oh, a fun. little bit scary. It was like kids approaching <laughs> us with like scissors and glue guns and like other like sharp and messy objects Mm -hmm. but but it was such this like a fun creative experience to get to yeah collaborate with kids on actually constructing a garment and seeing how excited they were for queens to actually wear them and um I don't have mine anymore unfortunately but I did have it in my closet for a long time because it really was this kind of like work of art and this like incredibly creative look that that really did deserve like a pride of place in anyone's drag closet, you know, because it did have that creativity and that that inspiration that so much of drag, you know, already has. So I love that. And I love what you're picking up about like kids inherently like understand drag, I think is like something Mm -hmm. that comes up for me really frequently when like the conversation around drag queens and kids is happening of like kids just get it. I mean, we immediately have the language of like dress up and play as things to fall back on like automatically. And then you add in the kind of like theatricalization of gender. And that is something that kids fall into so easily and understand and can grasp. And I think that story really, really speaks to that. And I think that that's so important to like understand is that like, I mean, so much of the work that we do, like parents and teachers and and grownups around kids get so 
maybe fearful, hesitant, scared to talk to kids mm-hmm. about any kind of queerness. And I think drag falls under that. Mm-hmm. And that like once you actually do talk about these things and introduce these concepts, they just get it. <laughs> totally. When I talk about drag and drag queen story hour, especially, I don't purposely like strip out the gender or the queerness, but I I do try to find the things that are kind of like between the lines, right? Like mm-hmm. those things like imagination and play and creativity and, you know, character building and world building, partly because like, I don't know, we can talk about gender until the cows come home and that's fine and that's useful and it serves a place, but but I feel like we are missing a lot if we only focus on those aspects of drag and and we're not thinking about the ways that it actually like produces something. And and mm-hmm. yeah, gender is part of what it produces, but but it produces a lot more than that and really has its own sort of like aesthetics and politics out in the world. So, oh, my gosh, that's absolutely true. And to to circle back a little bit to the history, I'm going to clearly need to get a historian on, on the podcast eventually. <laughs> but um, I come from I come from theater and um, specifically in children's theater and I I pers- I don't know, maybe people would disagree with me, but I personally link drag and kids to um, British pantomime performance, mm-hmm. um, which like is problematic and has like its mm-hmm. own thing, which is like a little bit more transphobic, I would say, whereas like drag is like came up through the queer and trans community and therefore mostly isn't transphobic. I mean, that's a whole other discussion. Um, But um, British Panto is like a really, really big influencer in quote unquote, like cross-dressing for kids. And I think that there is a link there, but I think that like, you know, drag queen story hours for and by the community. And mm-hmm. it's it's interesting to kind of put those two things in conflict with each other, especially talking about like what's going on in the UK and like trans kids and mm-hmm. just like how we're perpetuating like understanding of gender when we have something that is like actually really harmful, but then there's also like a version of it that's like really awesome and inspiring. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, Mm -hmm. where have you like felt, have you felt that tension, especially in like the political side of things? We're getting into like the hard stuff now a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) It is the hard stuff. I mean, yeah, it is interesting kind of hearing some people I don't even want to say on the left because it's it's not really a left-right issue. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, that kind of don't understand drag or that want to position drag as somehow misogynist or transphobic or uncritically portraying gender stereotypes. Whereas mm-hmm. for me, drag as a performance practice is all about exposing and undermining those gender stereotypes mm-hmm. and just sort of the fallacy of of gender as like a fixed system mm. overall. Um, yeah, I mean, for me, I guess I'll just say personally too, that like for me, my own performance um, or my own practice of drag, as much as I say it's not about gender, like it also is so much about my own expression of gender and creating conditions to be more feminine, to to mess with things, to mess with and, and kind of play with other elements of culture as well. So mm. I don't know if that really answers your question. No, it totally does. Because I think that all of this work is extremely personal. And Mm -hmm. like, it's about us as artists, right? Like understanding Mm -hmm. ourselves on a level where we can, I mean, this is the thing about teaching is that like, if you understand something well enough to teach it, you know, it like intrinsically and in your bones and in your body. And if we talk about you know, an element of drag being like this kind of educational representational quality, you're putting that through the filter of self and your own identity Mm -hmm. and like your Mm -hmm. own artistry of like theatricalizing your own gender so that others can perceive it in that like play space. Right. Right. I don't know. Maybe I'm getting too abstract. (laughs) No, no, I love the abstract. And yeah, I mean, thinking again, just personally, like my own childhood dress up was was a form of drag, right? Mm-hmm. And like that might not be true for every kid. Like I do think that there is a distinction between dress up and drag and mm-hmm. and also blurring that distinction is something that I'm kind of interested in in a theoretical way. But yeah. yeah, I mean totally like when I was a kid, I was definitely one of those kids who would dress up in my mother's clothes and scoot around in her high heels that were too big for me and put a towel on my head and act like I had, you know, little mermaid hair and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um and so I think, 
Yeah. I mean, again, it's like, I didn't have the language to describe that as drag or to describe mm-hmm. that as a form of gender play specifically. But yeah, I think it's just another example of of the ways in which drag and, and kid play is, is sort of already touching up against each other. I, I wanted to circle back because you had mentioned earlier that uh, it's not just drag queens, it's drag kings and like other forms of drag royalty. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that some folks maybe aren't as familiar with drag kings and et cetera outside of drag queens because I mean that's first I mean the title is drag queen story hour right and then I just yes, I although think, yeah I will say that we're actually just about to change the name of the organization so it will soon be drag story hour which oh my is gosh as a way to acknowledge that there are many other performers oh, in that's our community beautiful our breaking program. news yeah. you heard it breaking here news. first exactly <laughs> <laughs> well so tell me about that tell me about that because i think that um it's not like a typical image of drag queen drag story hour now um to see drag kings and and other folks doing these story times so tell me tell me about what that looks like a little bit Yeah, I mean, I think that as a program, we've always been very DIY and scrappy and sort of come as you are. And so, you know, it's not like we ever intentionally tried to make it only drag queens, but that's how it started. And Mm. but also very quickly, drag kings and other performers were doing readings in all of these different cities that I talked about earlier. Drag queen, I think, became the easy branding because it was Mm -hmm. easy for people to imagine and understand kind of quickly. Um, But yeah, this is a conversation we've been having at least for a couple of years, if not like almost since the the beginning of our own organization. And, you know, it took some time just to like figure out how to rebrand and do all the legal stuff and all that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, we're officially changing the name on coming out day this year, um, which we thought was a nice little way to make the announcement. Um, I love that. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I think it's great. I think it showcases the diversity of styles of drag in in the wider community. My hope is that is that people are excited to show up, whether it's a drag queen or a drag king, or again, another kind of, we often refer to like our non-queen and non-king uh, community as like our other royal beings, you know? So mm. we, we just kind of want to celebrate that fabulousness in whatever form people show up in. I love it. And I love like seeing the like public perception of drag expand too. And I think like, I don't know, you can't really talk about drag in America without talking about RuPaul and (laughs) how much uh, RuPaul and like the, and the show has really contributed to um, the American perception of what drag is and what drag culture is. Um, I don't know. When do you think there's going to be a, um, a kids, a drag queen story hour episode of RuPaul? (laughs) I am honestly shocked that it hasn't happened yet. Right. For a long time, it was like my big fear that they were going to kind of come in and like snatch our our work mm. and our idea and take credit for it. But I sure. think we're established enough now that like I would be very excited to see it happen. Um, I think it'd be hard for them to accomplish it without nodding to your brand. Yes, I agree. And I mean, if they want some of us to show up on the show, I'd be happy to to be there. Um, and I mean, RuPaul did do a sketch on Saturday Night Live that was sort of joking about drag queens reading mm. to kids in libraries um, in a sort of more like teaching kids how to read in the drag Mm -hmm. (laughs) slang version of reading rather than the the typical notion of reading. But uh, so she's definitely aware of it, you know, but I don't know, maybe they just haven't figured out a way to to incorporate it yet. All right. Rue, call us. Let (laughs) us know. Yes. (laughs) We're here for all. Exactly. We're here for all your queerness and kids needs. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) All right. So, um, You, as I have, have watched kind of like from this like 2015, 2016, starting all of this stuff spot, have watched, you know, your organization grow and also just like the climate around all of this transform in so many different ways. Mm -hmm. And I want to kind of talk about that. And like some of this is probably going to get heavy and hard because a lot of this is really heavy and hard, particularly in the moment where we're talking about this right now, presently. But also I think like there's a lot of good that's that's happened. So I don't know. Do you want to tell people the bad news first or the good news? <laughs> <laughs> we can start with the bad news, I okay. suppose. Sounds good. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, almost again, since the beginning of our organization, we've faced political backlash. uh, And what that's looked like has changed a little bit. I'd say that in Mm -hmm. recent months, it's certainly intensified, although I don't think that the fundamentals have changed. I mean, I think it's always rooted in 
homophobia and transphobia and racism to a large extent as well, yeah. white supremacy, and also just the kind of like general cultural and political backlash that this country is experiencing now in terms of basically straight white cis men feeling like they're losing power and you know, coming after marginalized communities, often as a way of distracting from real issues, mm -hmm. um, but also as a way of, I think, trying to scare us into some kind of like submission. Yeah, in some ways we're we're an easy target because we are so visible and yeah. we're we're so proud of being visible. Mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, I will say that like at the end of the day, I of course wish that we didn't have to deal with any of this. I think yeah. it's absurd and I think it's hateful and I think it's wrong. Um, but it does also show that we are doing something right, right? Yeah. Like we are pushing some of the buttons that need to be pushed and we are um, advancing conversations that need to be advanced. But, you know, there's also just a lot of ways in which like we've become the poster child for anything queer and trans um, in a way that I think also it harms us, but it also harms like other communities or or more specific elements of queer and trans communities still facing disproportionate forms of violence. And again, it, it, so much of it is just distracting and it's so frustrating to to be a pawn in that kind of distraction game. Yeah, no, I, that that makes a lot of sense. And I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's frustrating to watch all of this, of course, and like mm -hmm. not fun. And something that I think is like interesting and like the, I think the biggest difference between what I do and what y'all do is that you are so much more in person and in like the real world and in like tangible mm -hmm. spaces. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I feel like I, I do that. I do performances. I do gigs and go to yeah. libraries and schools and all that good stuff. But like, that's like an extra thing that I do. Mm -hmm. And like mm -hmm. most of my world is in digital space. And yeah. I think that there are, there are ups and downs to that for sure. Um, the online harassment is, you know, fun times. Um, and mm -hmm. I'm sure you all get your fair share of that too. But I think over the last like couple of months in particular in this last year, I have been so much more scared to do in-person gigs and like mm -hmm. i know that i'm like one person and i'm like going out to the i mean i mean COVID aside too right, like we're right. still in a pandemic and like just like health and safety aspect of things but like right. going like i have my first in-person gig in like a week and a half in vegas at their library down there and i'm really mm. excited for it because I, i'm i'm a theater person i love performance yeah. and like that's a big reason why i started doing the gigs anyways because i was like i miss an audience i want to be yes. in front of kids i want to see the impact and I want to like have an audience again but like the last yeah the last year it's just gotten scary like I'm mm -hmm. like scared for my life sometimes yeah. and like I think that for a long time I kind of like brushed off like I've gotten one death threat before and like mm -hmm. it's scary but like not to the extent where I think things are now and mm -hmm. I don't know maybe I'm just like asking for my own <laughs> for my <laughs> own comfort right now but like I I'm I'm curious how you all are thinking about safety right now because and I and to especially like contextualize this around the drag queen story hour that was basically ambushed in San Diego uh San Lorenzo in the Bay sorry Area. thank you San yeah. Lorenzo yeah yeah I mean yeah unfortunately you're right the context right now is that we are seeing more and more physical protests and yeah, threats of violence, threats of violent altercations, people showing up with weapons um, or threatening to show up with weapons. It's very scary. Um, you know, I personally feel fortunate in that none of my events have had any kind of like direct um, altercations like that, although mm -hmm. there certainly have been threats that I've um, had to deal with. I don't know. I always feel so awkward saying that as well because the fact that I'm not getting them right now just means that other people are getting them. So it's, yeah. it, it is this kind of unfortunate zero sum game. Um, yeah. I mean, as an organization, we've been kind of upping our safety. Um, we try not to say too much about like the specific actions we're taking just because yeah. that's one element of safety, but uh, yeah. you know, we've been working with established uh, organizations like the anti-violence project that really think about safety from a sort of holistic and community perspective and mm. 
you know, have analyses around policing that I think are useful and come from a more queer and social justice, racial justice kind of mm. lens, you know, which is not to say that chapters or, or individual performers would never work with the police, but really that it's a strategic decision to think about, you know, when can the police be beneficial? When might they escalate things or, you know, make spaces even less safe for some of our community members? Mm. Um, but really a lot of it, you know, a lot of what I've learned just in the past few months is that it is really about leaning into your community. It's about like finding the people who are already helping to keep the community safe. It's about identifying new volunteers to, you know, often just be watchful eyes or to be there to de-escalate de if needed. Mm -hmm. And yeah, just to really be as proactive as possible um, in planning. And I guess I can only speak personally just to say that it has, it has given me some comfort just to, mm -hmm. you know, go through those extra steps. It, it, it takes a lot. Like I was touring with my books this summer and so suddenly like every event needed like this extra layer of conversations around mm -hmm. like, where do you go if, you know, if someone disrupts the event and, and it is, it's, it's scary. It's terrifying to think about those things, to think about like, this is the small room I'm going to hide out in if I need to, um, you know, it is kind of a better to be prepared kind of moment. And I do appreciate all of the different like community partners that have shown up and, mm. and helped think through those things, you know, at some of my events, especially having, having like community safety patrols who were there, um, just to be, yeah, again, to be proactive and to be kind of watchful eyes was was very comforting. Yeah, I appreciate you talking about that because I think one, hopefully it it eases the minds of some of the parents who are listening mm -hmm. to and like, you know, Drag Queen Story Hour is like a safe place where you can still go. And mm -hmm. you all are thinking about this in a really purposeful way. And I think that that's just like a really, really important point that like no one's taking this lightly by any means. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, like our number one goal is to create safe spaces. And I mm -hmm. think in some ways, the nature of what that safety looks like has maybe shifted a little bit mm -hmm. um, in response to these threats. But yeah, it, it's still our number one goal. And and our number two goal or our one and a half goal is really to also still not just be safe, but to be thriving, to create joyful fun educational spaces. And yeah, I think we're still, we've been able to do that, which is exciting. Oh, good. I'm glad that you feel like you're still able to do that. And like, you're not compromising anything with yeah. like the political landscape, because it's it's really rough out there right now for anyone, any queer person, let alone trying to, you know, infiltrate kids spaces, which um, I think has dangers unto itself, which is, um, yes. has, has been, you know, disappointing for however many years we've been doing this, right? It's just yeah. um, escalated into new and terrifying territory. Um, but I think that as I've been like talking to so many people for this podcast and really like cultivating this kind of like field that's been growing over the last decade or so, it's mm -hmm. cool to see how people have really grown their own branch of this wild tree mm -hmm. and like how mm -hmm. people are intersecting in so many different ways and we're how, how we're all kind of dealing with a similar set of circumstances within our businesses, but also just like the amount of care and like the underpinning values of everything just feels mm -hmm. so aligned amongst a community that hasn't really had a lot of chance to talk to each other to this point. Yeah. And like, I think it's just really, I don't know, maybe like it's, it's weird that like this like hard thing is making like really interesting conversations of like how when we're talking about queerness and we're talking about kids and we're talking about performance, like how are we approaching security? And mm -hmm. we're talking about it from a community lens. And like, that is where the queer and trans values come in and like Absolutely. where we're all doing the same work and where the mission is about like making the world safer and better for young queer people. And I think that like, it just, it boils down to something that simple, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, I think I often forget that that is part of our mission, changing the world. And and again, the fact that there's so much pushback indicates that we are, you know, we're encountering friction in doing that, but that we mm -hmm. are succeeding, right? That we are forcing people to 
to admit their biases and admit their unfortunate ways of thinking. And one thing that I guess I should also say too, is that seeing the support that we've received amidst this backlash is also just incredible. I Mm -hmm. mean, seeing like hundreds of people show up to events because they know there's been some kind of threat and they want not only to make the event safe, but also to have it thrive and to, to make sure that that space is available for queer and trans kids or queer and trans families or, you know, anyone who's showing up, I think is, is really beautiful. And, and yeah, it's just, it's that reminder that like the side of love, the side of justice does always win out even, even when we do have to struggle to get there. I hope so. So this is a great segue into like the, the good side of all of this. And I think that like, it's not just like what's happening right now. It's like how the impact of organizations like yours and hopefully mine have been Mm -hmm. shifting, shifting culture i I honestly want to go that macro with it and also just like how things have been moving and adapting like there's a lot of moving pieces that i think have been uh like catalyzed over the last five to eight years ish Mm -hmm. and like i want to talk about that a little bit because i have my own perspective on how that's been happening but i'm really curious what it looks like from your end so i think first and foremost like obviously like however many chapters you have now like like the physical expansion is is Mm -hmm. massive because i mean you all we talked about you you all being global now but like you're also in the south and like in maybe some other unexpected places yeah, I mean, that's always been one of the exciting things for me is figuring out how we can go to places where we're kind of needed the most, you know, mm-hmm. in the more, in more conservative places, in more rural places, um, in communities of color that just might be kind of like under-resourced in general. Mm-hmm. It, one of the interesting things about our program too is that we have an organization and we have this network of chapters and also there's like plenty of people who just queens or kings or whoever who just pick up a book and read it to kids kind of on the fly. And and we're always trying to sort of bring those people in because we want to kind of be like the rising tide that lifts all boats, mm-hmm. right? And to share resources and yeah, just make it easy for folks to yeah. do this work. Um, but it is also exciting just to see the idea sort of take off in so many different ways, mm. you know, e- even if it doesn't necessarily have like our stamp on it or our seal of approval or anything like that. Yeah. So tell me just like even from your own perspective, either of like from an organizational side of it or like even like from your own personal like emotional side of it, like mm-hmm. what's the impact been? Ooh, it's a good question. I mean, I know it's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> and it's one, it's something that I think a lot about because, you know, I help with fundraising and, mm-hmm. and to a certain extent with grant writing and things like that. And impact is one of those like big, scary words where there's yeah. many different ways to measure it. I mean, I think I tend to measure it in the more qualitative and anecdotal and just feelings sort of direction. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I see our successes and our impacts in kids coming to events and smiling and having the best time. And this weekend I did a a story hour here in Tucson at our Pride Festival. And it was literally like the worst... Actually, no, it wasn't the worst. Given everything we're talking about, it was clearly not the worst. But it was, I was as close to a stage that was blasting dance music as was possible and like had this tiny little microphone and felt like I could barely hear myself think. But there was this like cute group of kids. And one of them was this little boy who was dressed in like athletic wear, but who was like dancing along and swishing his hips and shimmying his shoulders and doing all the things and just having a ball and sort of seeing that, that like, seeming incongruity of the kind of like masculine presentation and then just the joy of like, you know, letting loose and and doing all these things was truly feels like the kind of impact that I, that I want us to have. I think maybe in a more macro sense, like I think we are contributing to a world that, yeah, is safer for queer and trans kids and, and kids who are challenging gender stereotypes and it, it's become sort of a right-wing talking point that mm-hmm. that we're out here like encouraging kids to transition or something like that, which is obviously not what we're doing. But at the same time, it is wonderful to see this kind of growing movement that I think we play a small part in, in allowing kids or in encouraging kids to express themselves and their authenticity in ways that hasn't really been available to many kids before the past, you know, decade or so. Yeah. No, I totally agree. I, I'm I'm seeing I'm seeing the same things as well. And I think like the biggest thing that I've seen over this past year is just so many more resources that are 
specifically for queer and trans kids. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think I had done a gay, a single gig before this year that was just for a group of queer and trans kids. And now that's like most of my gigs right now. Mm-hmm. And like, mm-hmm. which is really cool. And like, that's not especially in kind of like early childhood, like elementary spaces, there really weren't a lot of resources still Mm -hmm. aren't a lot of like support group spaces like really just like not a lot of programming most lgbt i don't know if this is your experience but most lgbt centers really start with like youth and teen years and Mm -hmm. like there's been just like such a lack of stuff and resources for the specific age group that we're targeting which is mostly elementary school right and I mean, I'm just seeing so much more conversation about it, too. Mm-hmm. Like, I I just went to see, I mean, this is hashtag not sponsored, but um, I just <laughs> I just went to see the Bros movie the other night, Billy Eichner's new film. And there's a whole mm-hmm. dinner conversation where they're talking about LGBT education for, like, second graders. And right, I, like, right. and I, like, started, like, crying. I was, like, <laughs> I was, like, this is a conversation about my work that's happening in a movie theater in wide release, like, the first gay rom-com that this big... Hollywood studio is doing and I'm like that is a big deal that is a huge deal that the conversation's even happening on such a large Mm -hmm. stage Mm -hmm. because like I remember doing this in 2016 on YouTube and like I mean back then they were calling me a pedophile and not a groomer uh, (laughs) which is like the new rhetoric so fun and like I like I feel like I felt so much of the discourse of what's happening right now then, but just like on like a very personal individual mm-hmm. level. And mm-hmm. now it's like on a national scale, which is terrifying. But it also means that like we're not alone in like the speaking truth to power now. And like yeah. that's like a huge, huge difference that I'm seeing is like people actually caring now. Yeah. Are you feeling that too? I am feeling that. And yeah, I also just saw bros yesterday mm. and and did feel, yeah, really like called by that conversation in the mm-hmm. film. And because it is one, it's one that I think I still have difficulty having myself mm. sometimes of like, how do we articulate why it is important for kids to understand and be exposed to queer content, mm-hmm. you know, in second grade and kindergarten in elementary school. But it is so important to just lay those foundations so that kids do grow up like knowing that they have a space and knowing that they have a voice to talk about these things. And, and even if they're not queer or trans themselves to just like understand the world around them better. That's one of the things that I'm always telling the naysayers and especially the people who are like, you know, I'm not homophobic, but, or I support gay rights, but isn't this a little too young? Um, Mm -hmm. It is a really hard conversation to have, but it is also just so necessary. And yeah, I think the fact that we're, we're out here having it is definitely huge. Um, It's also just making me think, kind of jumping back to earlier in our conversation. Yeah. Yeah, I remember, God, I don't even know how many years ago, probably between 10 and 15, not quite 15, because I've been doing drag just shy of 15 years, but uh, performing at like what was then probably the only organization supporting like trans and gender non-conforming kids at the time and, Mm -hmm. and doing a number at one of their conferences. And it feeling so special and and not to say that that wouldn't be special now, but just that like now there are so many camps and organizations and resources for kids who are mm-hmm. transitioning or questioning or just, yeah, not conforming in whatever sort of way. And mm-hmm. I don't know, it's just, it's, it's sort of, it's very sweet to think back on those times and also just a very clear barometer of how much has opened up in the past 10 years. Yeah. You know, I totally agree. And I think like something that I love that like I think Drag Queen Story Hour or, or Drag Story Hour. Sorry, I need to <laughs> I need to get <laughs> there. I know it's, it's hard. Myself. It's hard. I'm working um, on it. No, no, it's good. It's good. It's a challenge. I love a challenge. <laughs> um, and like also shows that like I'm always learning like new yep. ways of, of using language. Um, <laughs> you know, no one's perfect. We're all on our journeys. Um, yes. But that I love that y'all are doing is like, I mean, queer kid stuff is like in your face educational and like that was the point of the series and like I do a lot of other storytelling work that's like not necessarily that but Mm -hmm. um I think I mean y'all are just existing as drag queens and like that is like a huge 
part of it of just like, you know, quote unquote, normalizing and like mm-hmm. getting kids to understand that like this kind of performance is like a part of culture and like as a thing that you should be exposed to no matter how old you are. And like, I think there's just something to be said for like wanting a world where this is just like a part of like a kid's activity list that's on like mommypoppins.com or whatever. <laughs> and like, it's just like mm-hmm. another part of like the parenting conversation that this like gets folded into what a young person's experience of life just is Mm -hmm. without having to like you know go out of your way to like find like how can i pull queerness into my child's life at this point and more like okay this is just like you know another like i'm gonna go to the you know the county fair in the summer we're gonna go to a drag queen story hour this saturday Mm -hmm. we're gonna go to the halloween party like that it just becomes a normal part of your kids life. And so I think Mm -hmm. that that gets us into like a nice little way to start wrapping up this conversation is like, what do you see for like the future of like drag story hour and kids and like this work? Yeah. I mean, I always joke that I want to see a drag queen on every corner reading to kids, but like, (laughs) I do really want us to continue to expand in places where at least right now we're needed the most. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that, you know, I mentioned before that like that might be more like rural or conservative places, but I don't think that's the only place, you know, I think pushing those boundaries of like getting the program into more schools um, mm-hmm. is a big one just mm-hmm. so that we're not always preaching to the choir, um, you yeah. know, and so that maybe, you know, I've done a number of school events and there's been some teachers or some parents who are not supportive and, you know, either pull their kids out or don't bring their class or whatever. And I think that those again are like useful generative conversations to have around why does this seem so threatening or why does this seem Mm -hmm. age inappropriate to you when like we've clearly done our work to make sure that this is you know as age appropriate as possible yeah i i will say that i don't know if you get this but like before every live performance gig that i do I get like, I get so nervous to start Mm -hmm. because like, I mean, the first lyrics that I sing from my theme song are it's okay to be gay. And Mm -hmm. like for every show I do, that's how I open. And like, I just get those butterflies. That's like, how's this going to go over? I'm just like going to be doing this thing as soon as I start. And like, there's no going back. And I've had people Mm -hmm. walk out before and like, that's, it's terrifying. You know, I would say I... I used to get nervous a lot. I don't feel like I do as much anymore. And, you know, this is maybe the kind of like mischievous queen in me, but mm-hmm. like, I I do like pushing those buttons a little bit. You know, I almost always say some version of like, oh, it looks like we've got some drag queens in training in the house today. Mm-hmm. Or I used to um, get kids say things like, sometimes I still do, you know, like when I grow up, I want to be a drag queen because mm-hmm. I do want to like normalize that and also kind of test some of those assumptions that like, yeah, should kids want to grow up to be a drag queen? Of course they should. Like they should want to grow up to be a drag queen and be something else if they want to, you know, like there, there's no reason to sort of think that this is maybe something that's like here for the moment, but not something we can talk about later or not something we can, you know, think about as just a broader way of life. Um, mm-hmm. I guess that's just maybe my coping mechanism for, yeah. for some of that nervousness. <laughs> you have to have but, one. <laughs> yeah, but I, I do like kind of intentionally pushing the buttons, especially mm-hmm. among like what might be the seemingly liberal parents or something. Mm-hmm. Totally. Sorry, I derailed our, um, our future conversation. If there's anything else you wanted to add to that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess another thing that we haven't talked about that sort of future thinking is, mm-hmm. um, and I didn't mention this in my intro, is that in addition to being a drag queen, I'm also a college professor. Mm. And so I do research and um, I've had the pleasure of writing scholarship on Drag Queen Story Hour oh, in addition to to just doing it. Um, and so I just kind of want to shout out this article on drag pedagogy that Ooh, I co-wrote yes. with um, Dr. Harper Keenan, who's an education scholar at the University of British Columbia. And in that piece, we think about how like, Drag pedagogy, kind of as we were talking about before, you know, drag and kids is not new. Neither is like the idea of learning from drag, right? Like Mm -hmm. drag performers are always learning from each other. We have kind of like modes of of teaching and learning within our community. Mm -hmm. Um, But we thought a lot about like what teachers or educators of any kind can learn from drag performers. And, you know, we think it's not just things like you know, you have to put on a wig and heels to be entertaining, but to, again, sort of read between the lines of drag and think about, you know, 
what does it mean to teach students through aesthetic transformations, right? Mm -hmm. Like how does like creating an unusual appearance or an unusual environment invite children to ask questions about what is typical and what's atypical and, and sort of how do we celebrate both of those things? Mm -hmm. um, we think about, you know, how can we all use humor or camp or like whatever our version of, of those sillies are to address difficult topics, to address things that are stigmatizing or feel mm -hmm. shameful um, in ways that drag performers have done, you know, for decades and centuries. We think about how, how can we kind of extend um, our conversations around empathy beyond just sort of like walking in someone else's shoes to thinking about what does it mean to actually transform ourselves? Like, what does mm -hmm. it mean to try on a bunch of different pair of shoes? Not because we're trying to be like someone else, but because we're trying to kind of find our most authentic voices or mm -hmm. our most authentic voices in those moments. So I think, you know, as much as I want like Drag Story Hour to thrive in its, you know, own branded official capacity, I also like want these other queer ways of thinking that that drag offers to really just like continue to permeate the culture in ways that you know, maybe we can point back to Drag Story Hour or to similar programs and say it started there first, but maybe also, maybe we don't know and, and maybe we're still kind of like better off just for being a little bit queerer all around. Yeah, I think so. And I think like what I love about you framing it in that way is that like, <laughs> the ups and downs of academia aside, like it, it gives <laughs> yeah. like a gravitas to not just like queer children's media and like theater, but like also just like kids stuff in general and like education mm -hmm. in general because i think that like i mean i find in a lot of like you know mainstream media spaces and like all this like discourse and stuff is like people don't think about kids content and like mm -hmm. eve i want to call out queer culture here too like there mm -hmm. are like queer spaces in media and film and like all these like culture spaces like still don't think about like queerness and kids content and like yes. I think that there's it's really important to like think about that I mean I'm seeing trans studies become like a much more like engaged uh, you know space like scholarly mm -hmm. space and like I mean the roots of queer kids stuff are in like the queer theory classes I was taking <laughs> right and right, like my right. gender studies minor and I was just right. kind of like hmm it would be cool if we did like a Mr. Rogers version of this class yes, yes. <laughs> right but like I think that there's something so important to legitimizing this work and like mm -hmm. you know the fact that we like have to do that like sucks mm -hmm. and like the labor of that sucks that like people aren't automatically like understanding that like this is a legitimate thing that we should <laughs> that we should right. take seriously but like i i'm so glad that you're working um with dr keenan who I've been, I think we're Twitter mutuals now. Um, right. But like, I, I'm loving that there's like scholarship starting to come about this. And like, I don't know if you've read like Jules Gil Peterson and like, yes. yeah, there's just like a lot of really, really beautiful work starting to come up in this space that I'm like so excited to watch grow because like there really hasn't been a lot like specifically looking at the intersections of like mm -hmm. kids and queerness and mm -hmm. like all of the multiple marginalizations and like also entertainment and then education right. like it's very complex and like right. I want to read more about it so great I'm glad you're <laughs> working <laughs> in the academic space too I think that that's really important because it is it is it's complex in like an interesting way not in like a scary yes. way so right I don't know. I'm I'm sure maybe I'll get you back on with Dr. Keenan and we'll <laughs> we'll dive into the academia theory of it all. But um, yeah. maybe for another time. But I'm I'm glad you're doing that work. Totally. Yeah. It's it's fun and and I will say just to um also take a moment to sort of plug my other queer media or Please queer do. kids media. Yeah, it's fun for me to get to work in the space where I both perform it and do it. I get to think about it in these mm -hmm. kind of, you know, meta theoretical ways. Um, and I've also gotten to produce children's books and mm. that's not something that I ever had really on my kind of like life bingo card was to publish children's books. Mm -hmm. Although it's also something that I'm proudest of and I probably will be like one of the, the most important contributions that I make in this world, right. Is to mm. like really give children that space to, to experiment and to play um with their identities and, yeah. and get exposed to drag and and part of what I wanted to do with my own books was like 
less to make it about like, oh, this is a drag queen, you know, like a drag queen is A, B, C, D or something like that. And instead to, to invite that space of play for kids to like feel it in their bodies to, um, yeah, to swish their hips, to shimmy their shoulders, to snap their fingers, to shout, yes, queen, like to do these things that for me as a young queer kid, um, Mm -hmm. were often deemed like too gay, too femme, to whatever and you know to create that kind of safe space where kids can experiment with it and you know maybe for some of them like swishing isn't their thing but maybe for some of them like that really does kind of create an environment where they can more fully express themselves and so mm. I don't know someday I'll write a more academic book and I think I think my drag children's books will still always be my favorite mm. children <laughs> mm, I love that yeah it's uh I think a lot about legacy too like especially yeah. I don't know. I mean, uh, maybe you feel this too, but like we're at this place in in culture where like we can be talking about a lot more of these things explicitly within kids media. And I think we're mm-hmm. the first generation to be able to do that. And like that's yeah. not at all to erase like the queer folks who have come before us in kids media. Right. But like now we can like be out about it. And like, mm-hmm. I mean, not that that isn't any harder. <laughs> right, it right. has its own challenges for sure. But like, you know, Margaret Wise Brown wasn't necessarily like out as a bisexual woman when she was writing Goodnight Moon. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. like, but we get I don't know, the privilege, I guess, to like be those people who like are those Mm -hmm. voices for the, Mm -hmm. you know, next generations and like the first iteration of being able to be explicitly queer and trans in our kids media and in our art for young people. And Mm -hmm. like, I don't know, I take that seriously. And it sounds like you do too. And like, what does it mean to be able to put that kind of storytelling and like art into the world for young folks and like i think that Mm -hmm. we've already seen it has a tremendous impact Mm -hmm. so but i'm glad that you're also like calling in the people that have been doing this for a long time because it's also just another reminder that like queerness and kid stuff has always been Mm -hmm. two peas in a pod and like Mm -hmm. even even if we weren't talking about it yeah so many of my own children's book like heroes or or authors that i loved when i was a kid turned out to be clear and like of course they were and and of course that helped open up our imaginations and yeah so I mean one of the things that I love about story hour as well is just like getting to get personally reconnected with all of this amazing children's literature mm-hmm. whether queer or not because I do realize that like so many of the values that I've held on to come from those books that I read mm-hmm. as a kid And like, I'm still amazed that so many people seem to forget so many of the lessons of them around Mm -hmm. like respect and diversity and equality and care just in general. And, Mm -hmm. and, but yeah, but like, it's all there, it's all there in the culture. And somehow as kids get older, we expect them to forget it or we strip it away from them. And Mm -hmm. yeah, it's just, it's really powerful to return to a lot of that. Yeah, I think the thing that I've been coming to recently is like, you know, that like mind blown meme where like you, it like gets more uh, and more uh, like, yeah. like brain, brain like lasers everywhere. Yes, My yes. version of that is that like, you know, um, Disney like codifies villains as queer, but then mm. like understanding that like, oh, these were actually like queer animators who were like basing like Ursula mm-hmm. on a drag queen and like rooted in <laughs> right. queer culture. And like the only way they could express and communicate their queerness was through this like villain coding which is the only way disney would let them do it so like Mm -hmm. actually that like is legitimate art it just like unfortunately created a trope because of the system that they were having to navigate and like survive through so it's kind of like yes coding disney queer villains is not great but also (laughs) like that legacy is important (laughs) Mm -hmm. so yeah i don't know i just uh i think a lot about queerness and kids and art and like the history of it but also the future of it and like how to live in this present moment as a person who does it it's complicated but also (laughs) um very exciting and cool that we get to do it so yeah i don't know yeah (sighs) yeah amazing all right well now's your time to plug things if you'd like to plug Yes. I mean, I would love to plug my two children's books. Uh, The first one is called The Hips on the Drag Queen Go Swish, Swish, Swish. And the second one is called If You're a Drag Queen and You Know It. And they're both available from Running Press Kids um, and should be available hopefully wherever books are sold. And if they're not at your local bookstore or library, request them. You know, and if you've already got your own copies, try to give them to a friend or, yeah, make sure that your library or school has them. 
Um, people can also follow me at Lil Miss Hot Mess on social media. That's L-I-L Miss Hot Mess. Um, and also be sure to follow Drag Story Hour. Depending on when this comes out, we may or may not yet have changed our socials. So either <laughs> look for at Drag Queen Story Hour or at Drag Story Hour online. We have events, you know, in dozens of cities around the world. So, and we also still do some uh, virtual events as well to make sure that folks who don't live near our our home bases have access to our programming as well. Amazing. Yeah. Everyone check and make sure, see if you have a chapter of Drag Queen Story Hour near you. And if you don't, maybe contact them about starting maybe a get new in chapter. Touch with us. <laughs> yep. All you need is a, you know, a performer and some books and a place to have it. And yeah, we can help you get started. Beautiful. There you go. Thank you so much for taking the time with me. I so appreciate it. This was just a lovely conversation and finally getting to chat. My goodness. I know. Thank you. This has truly been wonderful. I'm really grateful. Thank you so, so much to Little Miss Hot Mess for chatting with me about really wonderful things, but also some really hard, hard things that we're going through right now in the world as queer and trans people who are working with and for young people. So thank you so much to Little Miss Hot Mess for her work and for this conversation and to all of the wonderful folks at Drag Story Hour for just keeping going, even though it's hard. So please make sure you check out Drag Queen Story Hour, Drag Story Hour, visit their website, see if there's a local Drag Story Hour chapter near you, go to some of their library events, support them, drown out the haters, <laughs> and check out Little Miss Hot Mess and all of her wonderful work, and check out that article that she talked about with Dr. Harper Keenan, uh, scholarship in this subject around queerness and drag and kids is very few and far between. So it it's really important that we start building a, an academic body of work around this stuff, around this kind of field <laughs> that's been coming up that we're essentially trying to document in this podcast. So take a look at that article. Uh, it's great. Make sure you go and follow Little Miss Hot Mess on social media. You can always find me at Linz Amer, L-I-N-D-Z-A-M-E-R on Twitter and Instagram. You can also make sure to follow at Queer Kids Stuff on all of the social platforms. And if you want to support the podcast, you can become a member of the Queer Kids Stuff Patreon, sign up for our newsletter, and just generally keep up to date on all the things we do. And if you like the podcast, please write a review and rate us. That really helps other people find our podcast. All right. I think that's it for today. Thanks so much. Talk soon. Rainbow Parenting is hosted and created by me, Linz Amer. It's produced in partnership with Multitude and is edited by Misha Stanton. The theme music is by Amanda Darchangelis and the logo artwork is by Abe Tenzia.